I mean, I've got really bad hand pain this morning um, and jaw pain as well. Knee pain, my feet hurt, my joints hurt, my kidneys hurt today, my legs hurt. I'm in pain every day. Hi, I'm Jasmine Reed. I'm 27 years old and I have uh, had a chronic illness for 10 years. Like I wouldn't say I'm confident in a solid diagnosis. I've been to medical professionals. I've also been to a lot of naturalist doctors as well. And everyone has such different ideas. Um, we've kind of been all over the place with that. I, I'm almost what you would call medically agnostic, I think, <laughs> at this point, where I have a hard time believing that anyone really fully understands what's going on in, in the human body. I didn't realize That's that. That's an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about that. you need to come over, stand in my shoes. Agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on the show, chronic pain. If you put 15 random American adults in a room, three of them will tell you they feel troublesome pain every day. One of them will tell you the pain is so bad it interferes with daily life. Chronic pain is a leading driver of disability, work disruption, and healthcare costs. It helped fuel the opioid epidemic in this country, and then efforts to address the crisis made the suffering worse for many people with chronic pain. Maybe the most agonizing part of life with chronic pain is that for many people, like Jasmine Reed, the source of their pain is unclear. How do you ease pain if you can't pinpoint a physical cause? How do you convince others that you're not just imagining it? Some guy gave my mom a book and he signed it. It's all in your head. <laughs> Jasmine, it's all in your head. You know, love the author to this book about how illness is all in your head. And I did not read that. <laughs> I, I, at 17, I, that is it's very sensitive. Could you imagine telling someone you're, you know, something horrible's happened to you and the first thing they say is it's your fault? Um, <laughs> which, you know, I'm more open to now it being my fault and trying to figure that out. But at that point, that was very painful. There is a kind of a stigma associated with chronic pain, though. It's sort of driven by that sentiment. Yes. And I think part of that is people want to feel comfortable and safe. And you don't want to think that something like that could just happen. And so you want to blame the person, you know, afflicted with it. It's like, it has to have been something you did wrong or you're doing wrong or you're not trying hard enough to get better or you're not being positive enough because you want to, you know, people find a lot of comfort in control. Um, and a 27 year old who's been sick for 10 years and there's, you know, not much more she could really be doing about it isn't something that fits the world that people want to live in. For people with chronic pain, there is a glimmer of good news. Researchers have figured out how to trace the pathways of pain, to see the biological signature of it throughout the body. And there's finally consensus among scientists for a theory that explains why the pain is happening. If you can confirm it and explain it, you can figure out how to treat it. So let's dig in. Jasmine, will you take us back to the first time you had an inkling that something might be wrong? Oh, wow. I mean, I kind of think, looking back, that I've been, like, there's been something wrong my whole life. But things got more serious when I was um, 15. I am, well, was <laughs> an overachiever, you know, perfectionist, playing two sports in student council, getting good grades, um, exercising more than I was sleeping, trying to be that overachiever, perfect kid. Um, and it was the end of my freshman year of high school where I started getting really, really worn out. Um, but it wasn't until the next year that it was severe. Like, I remember thinking maybe I have asthma. Um, I was having so much lung pain. I felt like I was getting slower in sports, but um, I didn't want to be a quitter. Um, my mom kept trying to convince me to drop out of something, um, but I didn't want to, I didn't, you know, you're taught to push through things. And if you set your mind to it, you can get anything done. And, you know, pain will just teach you and <laughs> pain is weakness leaving the body, you know? Uh, so I really, really subscribed to all those ideas and excuses are like losses. 
everyone has them, but champions, all those, you know, just do it. Um, yeah, but I would, I would remember wiping tears while running during track practice because I really couldn't handle continuing to go on, but I was doing it anyway. And then one day I collapsed. It was at my cousin's wedding. It was right before one of my cousin's weddings. And I just fell backwards. And I think people in my family caught me. But after that, I really was completely limp and had to be carried around for like a whole week. And we were very confused as to what was going on. That was more than a decade ago, and the confusion still hasn't lifted. First, the doctor thought it was mono, then some kind of problem with her adrenal glands. And now Reed's best guess is fibromyalgia, but she's given up trying to get a diagnosis for the moment. There's something called medical PTSD, where you really like, like I'll kind of freak out going into a doctor's office now because of, you know, how many times I've been invalidated or I've been given a lot of hope and then been super crushed when nothing worked. At the beginning, it was like, you know, my full-time job was getting rid of this, take care of it. Don't be sick anymore. Got to move on with your life. But it was probably about five years ago where it was just like, I just got so tired emotionally and physically from trying to get better uh, that it was like, I, I need a long break. You know, at some point you can't be planning, oh, I'll get better and then I'll do this. And you have to just accept this is what is and this is what I can handle doing. You know, I can't really make very many plans. She had to drop out of college and move back home. I mean, it affects everything. There's a really disturbing name for um, pain when you can't sleep. It's called painsomnia. Sounds like a horror movie or something. Um, so I have that a lot at night. Um, I mean, it's just simple daily tasks. Doing the dishes is hard. Driving, I really can't drive more than 30 minutes. Why is that? Um, there's pain with my in my legs and just general weakness and tiredness and then the hand pain again. Um, so if I drive for too long, I get really worn out and it's really, um, you know, when you say, what can you not do, uh, because of your health, my abilities change from day to day and what I can handle changes from day to day. And I'm constantly needing to decide, um, like I'm, I'm making deals, you know, with my body knowing like, I'm going to do this and this is going to hurt me later. And so a lot of times it's not about, you know, can't and it's, you know, what's the cost? So something that might not hurt right now will make you hurt later? Um, it'll probably hurt right now too, but it's like, oh, I won't be able to use my arm the rest of the day. Or I'll be tired for the weekend. I might experience a crash after this. I'm going to be in a lot of pain tomorrow. It'll probably hurt to sleep tonight. But sometimes I just like, you know, I want to function and do things and live. Um, so I... I make those trades. It's hard to describe because I've been ill for 10 years. So I don't really, I have a hard time when people ask me to describe my pain or what level it's at because it's so, I don't remember what having no pain is like or what a normal person experiences. If so far none of the scans and the blood tests and the exams suggest a physical reason for your pain, do you ever wonder if it's real? I think at the beginning of my illness, I did. Um, and I have questioned myself. Um, I don't know if I'd say if it's real or if I'm causing it is, is more what I'd be concerned about. I've never been like, oh my gosh, am I just really overdramatic? And this is normal pain everyone experiences or something I'm making up because I was, I mean, before I was sick, I was a pretty serious athlete and pretty gung-ho about pushing through the pain. I mean, there are tests that show that there's something, there, there's definitely something up um, in my body. We just don't know the exact cause of it. As for relief, Reed says over-the-counter meds like Tylenol and Advil sometimes help a little. She's never tried opioids. I don't know. There's just so many horror stories out there. I know a lot of people use them and they are very helpful for them. Mm. And that is, that is their thing. But for me personally, I'm a little too freaked out by all the possibilities there. There is one thing that's worked. Yes. Um, the thing that has worked the most was, it's called the ARP wave treatment. 
to send direct currents of electricity mm-hmm. through your body. Um, but what they do is they have these, these pads um, and then they'll find where it hurts the worst. Um, they have you do exercises while they turn it up as far as you can absolutely handle going. The, the ARP wave helps your brain communicate better with whatever body part you're working on. And that's apparently what helps with the pain. Um, I don't fully understand it. Um, so I, I've done it twice. Um, the first time I was in a doctor's office. The second time we rented the machine and a friend helped me with it, which was pretty traumatizing for both of us. This was about five years ago when she was still in college. She and her friend set up in the living room of a house she was renting with some roommates. An old, an old rickety house. And at that point, we were focused on my knees and I would have to knee, I'd have to do a wall sit. He would sit like, you know, the cords would be hooked up to this little box and he would sit by the box and he'd have to turn it up to like basically when I would start screaming and then I'd have to try to breathe through it and we'd have a timer on for a minute and we'd do several sessions of that every day. I mean, that was the last time I did that treatment, I think was the worst pain I've ever been in, but it helped. It helped my knee pain considerably. So what does that make you think about the possible cause of your pain? I mean, it's, I mean, it, it makes me think that my brain's not communicating with my muscles or the rest of my, there's something blocking that communication. If opening up that communication helps with the pain, but it's something that's like, you know, it's very expensive to do. It's very painful. And it's like, man, I can't just work on every part of my body with this thing, you know, once a year for the rest of my life to try to, you know, keep myself functional. I just don't think that would work, but it's really the only thing that I've had dramatic results with. Unfortunately, for a lot of people suffering chronic pain, like Jasmine Reed, finding relief is hit or miss and can take a long time. It's a lot of work for people to get better. Dan Claw is one of the country's top experts on this. He heads the Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center at the University of Michigan. And he says, for every three things a patient tries, only one will work. So if you're a patient, you have to try three new therapies this year if you want to get better. Let's find out why. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on Top of Mind, chronic pain. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Rose. When I say pain, your first thought is probably the kind that scientists call nociceptive. That's when you, you know, bang your thumb with a hammer, you burn yourself, you get in an accident, you have a surgical procedure. This is Dan Claw. I'm a professor of anesthesiology, medicine, and psychiatry at the University of Michigan. That kind of pain, nociceptive pain, is the kind of pain that most people and, and a lot of even healthcare providers until relatively recently thought almost all pain was. They were wrong. Dr. Claw was one of the earliest to push for an expanded understanding of pain that's not coming from some sort of injury or surgery or even nerve damage. This other kind of pain can't be explained by an X-ray or CT scan. It might move around the body and flare up unpredictably. This mechanism might be the most common mechanism of pain because it seems to be front and center in highly prevalent pain conditions like fibromyalgia, headache, irritable bowel, many cases of low back pain. When I first went into studying fibromyalgia 30 or so years ago, virtually no one thought it was a real legitimate disease. What was the thinking before that then about these kinds of pain conditions? That that these people, it was all in their head. They were neurotic middle-aged women. There's a lot of stigmatization of these, and there still is. I, I don't want to make it out that, you know, everything is good now. And But at least on the scientific side, there is really little or no disagreement about whether pain can come from the brain or the central nervous system. In 2017, the International Association for the Study of Pain officially recognized this other kind of pain, centralized pain, as legitimate. It's so new, there's still a lot to learn about why it happens, and more importantly, how to treat it. But here's the basic idea. Think of an electric guitar. There's two ways to make the loudness of an electric guitar Um, louder, if you will. One is you can strum the strings harder. 
or the second way is you can turn up the amplifier. The strings on an electric guitar are very similar to the nerves that we have going to different tissues in our body that pick up information about what's going on in that body. And just like a guitar has different strings that when you strum them um, have qualitatively different sounds, the different nerves that we have going to different regions of the body, some nerves pick up heat and cold. Some pick up where that where that region of the body is in space. Some pick up chemical mediators of inflammation. If they get strummed by some damage, a burn, a surgical procedure or whatever, they are activated. Um, and then that information can theoretically um, be sent through the amplifier all the way up to the brain to be felt as pain. But if the guitar is being strummed and the amplifier is set very low or the amplifier is turned off, that person won't experience pain even if the, someone's strumming away on the guitar. Maybe you know someone like that with a really high tolerance for pain. But people with centralized pain, the kind that doesn't seem to have an obvious cause, they have the opposite problem. Essentially, where, where the amplifier is set too high, that the, in the spinal cord and the brain of an individual is more sensitive to pain. Remember, there are two ways to make a guitar louder. One is to strum harder on the strings, which are out in various parts of the body, picking up sensations. The other way is to turn up the amplifier, which resides in the brain and spinal cord. If the amplifier is set too high, even just innocuous strumming can be unbearable. Anywhere in the body, there's low-level activity of these different nociceptors. These strings are constantly being, if you will, strummed a little bit by just moving, walking, sitting. And so there's a lot of things going on out there. But in a subset of people in the population that have this amplifier problem, they, they are experiencing pain, even with just day-to-day -day physical activities. The, the, the walking, the movement, the sitting that occurs day-to-day -day is enough to cause them to experience pain. Their brain codes these things as being loud or unpleasant instead of just being normal intensity. One of the reasons we're so certain that this is what's going on is that these individuals that are more pain-sensitive are typically more sensitive to all types of sensory stimuli. They're more sensitive to the brightness of lights. They're more sensitive to odors. They're more sensitive to noises. They're more sensitive to the side effects of drugs. A common symptom that individuals with this underlying problem will experience is they um, feel the urge to urinate frequently. And you'd say, well, why would frequent urination be in any way related to being bothered by the brightness of lights? Well, that's a sensory sensation. So if in your brain, the threshold at which you feel the urge to urinate is much lower, just like the, the threshold at which you hear a noise to be loud or an odor to be bothersome, um, that those sensory thresholds throughout the entire body are set lower. So people will have all these annoying symptoms like urinating frequently and feeling different types of neurologic symptoms throughout the body. Um, again, just by virtue of the fact that this amplifier is set too loud, either because that person just was unfortunate enough to be born with a higher amplifier setting, or because they didn't sleep well, they didn't get as much exercise, they were under a lot of stress, you can acquire a higher amplifier setting. And women have a much higher amplifier setting than men do, on average, which helps to explain why women are nearly twice as likely as men to have chronic pain. And why women often struggle to have their pain taken seriously by primary care doctors who aren't well-versed in this whole amplifier idea. So, just as pain researchers were starting to embrace this new concept of centralized pain, overdose deaths rose nearly 30%. The opioid crisis exploded. Who's to blame for this nation's opioid crisis? Opioid deaths were even more common than gun-related homicides in the U.S. in 2015 
A new study out shows there may be gross underreporting of opioid-related deaths, meaning the opioid crisis may be far worse than Experts like Dr. Claw already knew that prescription opioids were not a good solution for people with chronic pain. But their expertise was no match for the marketing power of the drug companies who make opioids. In the 1990s, a couple of those companies got the FDA to make some minor changes to the labels of their drugs. That allowed them to go out and promote the use of these opioids for chronic pain. And this was really the first time ever that people were advocating the use of opioids for treating chronic non-cancer pain or chronic non-malignant pain. And this really caused a lot of problems because there really had not been any pivotal studies or seminal studies published in big journals that suggested we should change our mind about using opioids in, in chronic pain conditions. But the horse had left the barn. Primary care doctors and even some pain specialists all across the country were hearing from drug companies that an opioid could finally bring the relief their patients with chronic pain needed so desperately. And the drug companies falsely promised their opioids were not addictive. As 60 Minutes has reported, the explosion in both the demand and supply of pharmaceutical opioids began with the aggressive marketing of narcotics to treat chronic pain. The current CEO and members of the wealthy family that founded Purdue Pharma all offering apologies. Dr. Dan Claw is now involved in lawsuits against the opioid manufacturers. I really think that what happened was bad. And not just because marketing opioids for chronic pain helped fuel the addiction and overdose crisis. It turns out that for many people with a centralized amplifier problem, opioids can make the pain worse. It's deceptive, though, because at first, the drug seems to help. The benefit that someone with centralized pain transiently gets when they start taking an opioid is actually not a pain relief benefit. They get a benefit in that the first couple nights you take an opioid, um, it makes you go to sleep more. So they're, they sedate people. What happens often is that then after the person gets that transient relief, they start to become dependent on the opioid and develop tolerance, and they need to take a higher and higher dose to continue to get the same effect. And that causes its own set of problems. Namely, that they're not getting any pain relief from the opioid, but now they're dependent. So if they just stop taking it, they'll experience painful withdrawal symptoms. Tapering off that dose can ease the withdrawal, but it's tricky to get that right. Plus, Dr. Claw's research shows that taking opioids for a long time alters the body's natural pain relief system, making the person even more sensitive to pain. So now their amplifier is set even higher than it was to begin with. The longer they're on it, the higher the dose they go to, the less well it works. And over time, again, many of us think that opioids actually are making this kind of pain in these types of patients worse. But it wasn't long before many, many patients were caught in that trap. The Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions will please come to order. In February 2019, the U.S. Senate held a hearing to look at how the opioid crisis and the government's response to it had made life more difficult for people in pain, especially chronic pain. A witness at the hearing named Cindy Steinberg caused a stir by testifying from a cot where she had to lie down periodically to ease her back pain. My life changed in an instant more than two decades ago when I was crushed in a serious accident. On an otherwise typical day at my job as a manager at a technology company, I opened my file drawer and unbeknownst to me, moving men had stacked cubicle walls against it. The cabinet and all the walls fell on me, crushing me and causing extensive damage to my back and spine. I was suddenly plunged into a search for relief from an unrelenting, gnawing, burning band of hot coals across my mid-back and the crushing pre pressure of clenched muscle spasms. Chronic pain is very different from acute pain. It is relentless. It never ends. I often say it feels like you are a prisoner in your own body, only you are a prisoner being tortured 24-7 and there's no escape. Steinberg's desperate search for relief took five years and led her to start a support group for people like her. She's now National Director of Policy and Advocacy at the U.S. Pain Foundation. Why did it take me so long to find somebody? And what was special about this doctor that finally helped me? And it wasn't anything miraculous. And that's, I think, an important message today, which is he 
empathize with me. He believed me. A lot of people with pain don't get believed because it's an invisible disability. He said, I will work with you to help you find things to manage your pain. And to Steinberg's surprise, opioids were part of the solution. This was the early 2000s, well before the opioid crisis would hit the nightly news. But even then, Steinberg says, I didn't want to take any medication because I'd heard horrible things about pain medication. And he tried me on a lot of other things first, like gabapentin, which is common. It made me so tired I couldn't function. But he convinced me to try hydrocodone-Tylenol combination medication. And I tried that medicine, and it helped me, and I never got high from that medicine. I took a relatively low dose of it. I still had pain, but it allowed me to function and become the advocate that I could. I took that medicine for 10 years at the same dose. I never had to change my dose. I never got a high. But as more potent drugs flooded the market and doctors were encouraged to prescribe them at higher doses, the positive experiences some patients like Steinberg had with opioids got swallowed up in the addiction narrative of the epidemic. So first, the addiction crisis landed a lot of people with chronic pain on opioids they never should have been prescribed in the first place. Then, patients who'd had some success with opioids were assumed to be addicts. Doctors stopped renewing those prescriptions. Pharmacies stopped filling them. A lot of providers are now scared to to provide opioids to patients they've been prescribing them to for many years. This is Helena Gazelka, a pain specialist at the Mayo Clinic, who also testified at that Senate hearing in 2019. She said well-intentioned new guidelines from the CDC were interpreted so strictly by doctors, they inadvertently left patients in the lurch. Most opioids in the United States that are prescribed chronically are prescribed by primary care providers, many of them who don't have um, um, any education in managing chronic pain. They don't have time to go into the detail that it takes to um, talk to patients about other uh, options. And I think in some ways, I mean, we've done what needed to be done, which is to drastically reduce opioid prescribing, I think. But um, I worry that we're getting ahead of ourselves with having available um, other options. Now consider what that could mean for someone with new pain that doctors can't seem to figure out. Opioid addiction is so prevalent. Anybody going from doctor to doctor complaining of a mysterious pain is likely to get labeled a drug seeker just out for a high. I have a patient who has uh, not only given me permission to share her story, but has encouraged me to do so. 60-year-old lady in 2017 went to her local provider in a small town in Minnesota with um, abdominal pain. Uh, she'd been very active running before this. As the year progressed, she was, uh, became less functional. Her primary care provider did not, not know what else to do for her other than ordering a CT scan of her abdomen and ruling out any difficulty there. She started presenting to the emergency room locally. After multiple presentations, the emergency room physician sat her down and said, Mrs. B, you have chronic pain. You're gonna need to go home and figure out how to manage this. She was frustrated, so came two hours to the Mayo Clinic emergency room and eventually ended up on my schedule in the pain clinic. Now, talking about bias, I admit that when I saw that on the schedule and I read her history, I just felt a little irritated that morning having to go into the room, but I stood outside of her room and I told myself, you're gonna listen to her like this is the first time she's told her story. And I went in and I listened to her and I ordered an MRI that showed that she had a metastatic lung cancer eating through her rib and the uh, nerve that innervated that area in her abdomen. It had been present for at least a year and ignored because people felt that she was seeking opioids. Bias is a significant problem in all areas of medicine. It's a problem in research. It's a problem uh, when we see patients. um, And it contributes significantly, I think, to the stigma that surrounds the treatment not only of chronic pain, but of addiction and of um, mental health disorders. Women and people of color have a particularly hard time getting their health complaints taken seriously, noted Gazelka. Doctors need much better training on all of this, said Cindy Steinberg of the U.S. Pain Foundation. Medical students receive an average of nine hours of pain management training in four years. Veterinarians get 87 hours. Your pet is getting better pain management often than people do. Since that hearing, the CDC has been revising its opioid guidelines to address unintended consequences. 
the Department of Health and Human Services created an interagency task force to recommend best practices for pain management. All three of the experts we've heard from so far today were on that task force. The report they released in 2019 says opioids should not be the first line of treatment for people with chronic pain. There are a number of drugs used to treat depression, for example, that are not addictive and often work better, says Dan Claw at the University of Michigan. The dose we use to treat pain is much, much lower than the dose that is an antidepressant dose. So I want to make sure that people with chronic pain are aware that we're not using them in them because we secretly think they're depressed and we're going to give them that and that's going to make their pain better. It's just the case that there are many drugs um, that act on different neurotransmitters, but they work in these centralized pain states because we think that the low norepinephrine and low serotonin causes this increased pain sensitivity, causes the sleep problems, and, and these drugs are counteracting that. They seem to dial down the body's pain amplifier. Same goes for treatment that doesn't involve drugs at all. A lot of people, including providers, you know, are dismissive of things like yoga, tai chi, acupuncture, mindfulness, um, and all of these things can really be quite helpful. You see that a lot of these mind-body therapies seem to be working, you know, in ways similar to the way drugs are working. Changing these neurotransmitters, changing these neural systems more um, holistically than, you know, when we give a drug, it's more of a sledgehammer that raises norepinephrine or serotonin everywhere in the human body. And it seems like these non-pharmacologic therapies, um, if you find the right ones for the right people, they, they often can get some of the beneficial effects um, without as many of the side effects of the drugs. Is there always something that will work for a person with centralized pain? It's just a matter of finding the solution? I have to be careful how I answer this because there undoubtedly are, you know, tens of thousands of chronic pain patients that feel they've tried everything and that nothing has worked. And I don't want to, you know, tell them that they're wrong. But I would say that in the overwhelming majority of people with chronic pain, um, if you can help them continue to move forward and try new things and especially try, uh, I'll say again, some of the non-drug therapies, um, we're now getting a lot smarter with different sort of neurostimulatory devices, um, vagal nerve stimulation, different TENS units and neurostimulator units, even spinal cord stimulators. So there's a lot of different uh, treatment options available to patients. And the worst thing for a chronic pain patient to do, but I entirely understand why that often happens, is to sort of give up and not try new things because that's that will ensure they're just going to slowly, gradually get worse and worse. One of the biggest problems we have right now is that most providers don't understand chronic pain. They don't, and they're just beginning to understand these centralized pain states. And then even if they do, and they're empathetic, they don't have the time to spend. They're not reimbursed to spend the amount of time with patients. These therapies that I've been talking about are not always widely reimbursed. And there are incentives in the U.S. healthcare system for people to do a lot of surgery, even if people aren't going to benefit from surgery. We, we, we see a lot of people in the U.S. that have chronic pain that get surgery for that that clearly are not going to benefit. Um, there's surgical procedures for low back pain, for example, that are almost exclusively done in the U.S., not in any other countries, because other countries simply don't feel those procedures work well enough that their national health insurance systems would pay for them. So it's really going to take those systems to change before people are going to be able to get better treatment of their pain. For all the damage the opioid epidemic has done to chronic pain sufferers, there is one positive result Dr. Claw can point to. The opioid epidemic, the if you will, the increase in chronic pain in the population has led the National Institutes of Health to be much more um, aggressive about funding pain research. And that's been extremely helpful and will be. The NIH is now looking to fund research into every aspect of why pain happens and how to treat it, including a better understanding of the role the mind plays in the experience of pain. What if it is all in your head? 
it'd be a little annoying because it'd be like um wizard of oz like oh you just had the ruby slippers the whole time you could have gone home (laughs) you didn't have to go through all this i'm julie rose this is top of mind Today on Top of Mind, chronic pain. The last thing a suffering person wants to hear is, it's all in your head. The implication is the pain's not real or that you're causing it somehow. But look at it another way. If the pain is in your head, then the answer is in your head too. Mm, That would be nice. This is Jasmine Reed again, the 27-year-old with chronic pain doctors have yet to diagnose. Yeah, it would be easier if I could just say I had control over this and I could, it'd be a little annoying because it'd be like um, Wizard of Oz, like, oh, you just had the ruby slippers the whole time and you could have gone home. <laughs> you didn't have to go through all this. But really, I mean, what I've learned from therapy is um, my whole thing is that I'm kind of a control freak and I'm very, I'm too serious about, okay, I'm going to take responsibility for this and this is my fault. It's the surrender that's the healthier option emotionally and physically instead of the control and this is on me and putting all that extra pressure on yourself and guilt is just going to make everything worse. I don't like to say the phrase it's all in your head. I like to say it's in your brain that your nervous system has sensitized and is creating this experience. What neuroscientist Tor Wager is learning in his lab at Dartmouth College is that pain is more than the physical sensations being sent along the guitar strings of your nervous system. And pain is more than the amplifier setting that determines how sensitive you are to those signals. How you perceive pain is also affected by your thoughts and feelings and expectations. Pain is an experience that evolved to protect you against certain kinds of threats. In this case, tissue damage in the body. And so the point of pain is to signal potential damage. And with potential damage, you don't have to wait till the damage has happened. In fact, you don't want to because once damage has really happened, it's too late. So pain is a signal that The damage is impending, or it's coming, or it's close. Did you get that? Pain is a warning system. It doesn't correlate with how much damage has actually been done to the body. It correlates with how much damage the brain expects to be done, which it pieces together from your past experiences, current state of mind, and expectations of the future. You know, one of the examples of how pain is influenced by more than what's just coming up through your spinal cord into the brain is the study of placebo effects, which are the study of what happens when people take nothing. There's no pharmacological treatment, but the context of getting this treatment, the hope, the expectation can cause the release of opioids in the brain, natural painkillers, can decrease activity in pain-related brain areas and can increase activity in brainstem systems that can turn pain off at the spinal level. So essentially, your brain has the capacity to turn pain up and down based on what else it knows about what's happening in the situation. Tor Wager's team has found ways to objectively measure how much pain a person is experiencing at a given moment. And they can see that someone expecting to feel more pain actually is in more pain. And that's called a nocebo effect. So when people believe that they are experiencing something really bad, uh, the belief itself will not only increase pain-related activity in the brain, It will also increase pain-related activity in the spinal cord. It will also cause the greater release of stress hormones in the body. The good news for people who experience chronic pain is that the opposite is also true. We've done a series of experiments over the past 15 years or so in which we give people, for example, a cream that we tell people is going to block their pain. And we test them with a controlled level of painful stimulus. Okay, so imagine you've signed up to be a subject in one of Tor Wager's lab experiments. Some official-looking person in a white coat hooks your wrist up to a machine that delivers a small electric shock. 
The lab worker gives you a couple of shocks and asks you to rate how painful they were. Nothing excruciating, mind you, but certainly uncomfortable. And then comes the cream. The lab worker smears it on your wrist and tells you it'll help ease the pain. And then what you don't know is the cream is a sham. It's a placebo. And yet... When people believe that they're getting the effective cream, they have more hope, they have more expectations for pain relief. And that's where we see decreases in the areas that seem to be the most important for constructing and processing that pain experience. Meaning they, they actually feel less pain because they expect to feel less pain when they put the cream on. Yes, exactly. They, they actually feel less pain because the context is telling them that the pain that's the signals that are coming up from their spinal cord are, are not so important, that it's not so um, important to interpret them as pain. And so they feel less pain. The power of placebos has been proven time and again by Wager and others. Whether we're talking about how much pain a person feels or how well a drug works in a person's body, if you expect something to work, it's more likely to work. And some people are more susceptible to placebos. And if I am one of these people who is easily tricked into believing that some pill you're giving me is going to ease my pain and then suddenly my pain is gone, what does that say about me? <laughs> well, it's not necessarily that uh, you're more gullible. That, that's um, what we're finding is that that's, that's not really the main ingredient. The current thinking is that if you, you know, so if you're one of those people who responds well to a placebo, you also may tend to be more optimistic in some studies. You may tend to be able to mount a stronger dopamine response and a stronger opioid response. So it may be that your system for understanding the context uh, and situation, your prefrontal cortex, is more connected to the systems that, that shape pain experience and that drive your physiology. So you can think of it not necessarily as being gullible, but also as being integrated, right? Your, your thoughts and your feelings are tightly integrated. For someone who's suffering chronic pain, being susceptible to the placebo effect can be a huge advantage because it means that just by changing your outlook on the pain, you can feel less of it. Many people are told that if they feel pain, that's a sign of tissue injury and damage and that therefore they shouldn't do anything painful. And when they can't control that pain, when they can't make it stop, that's really frightening. It would frighten any of us, right? That's natural. So a common thread among people who treat pain successfully worldwide is to, is to help people realize that the, that the pain is not a sign of damage. It's just pain. And therefore, it's safe. And if it's just safe, then you can start to unlearn. You can start to ramp down the vigilance over time and ramp down the, the attention to pain. Some of Torweger's latest research proves this can work for people with chronic pain. It's based on something called pain reprocessing therapy, which is a new treatment not yet widely available. The concept is built around this idea of safety. You try to help the patient recognize that their pain is a signaling problem in the nervous system and not a sign of physical damage they need to fear. Once you have that in place, you don't have to believe it fully. You just have to, you just have to be open to the idea because once pain is safe, then you can start to do the second step, which is to, to do things that are actually painful and uncomfortable um, to challenge the pain, essentially. Uh, because if it's safe, it is safe, right? And, and what that does is helps to unwind that sensitization. So, okay, so if there's a, if, if, for example, it hurts to, I don't know, bend your leg in a certain way, then you would intentionally bend it in that way all the while sort of, I guess, breathing calmly and reminding yourself that there, you're not, this is not causing any actual damage to your body. That's right. And, and, you know, you, you have to, you have to be confident with a doctor potentially too, that, that this isn't, you know, this isn't causing tissue damage. That's the, that's the start of this decision, right? Right. So here's how it might play out. Suppose your knee is hurting. 
and I, I could do something that makes it worse. In fact, I tend to do that. I'd bend it this way. I'm like, oh, that really hurts a lot. And then it gets worse, right? That's bad. So, okay, that's acute pain. That's I probably have to lay off it, right? You don't, don't challenge an acute injury by making it worse. Acute pain is the nociceptive pain we talked about earlier. It's pain clearly caused by some kind of real damage. So maybe you go to the doctor who checks you out and says, yeah, you've strained something here. Take it easy. It'll heal itself in time. So months pass. The doctor now says whatever actual problem there was in your knee has healed, but the pain persists. Now, after a while, I realized that um, that, that signal that is interpreted as pain when I bend it, in fact, hey, that's probably not probably not a sign of actual damage. Uh, what's happening is that the signals in the back or the knee or the neck are have been normalized. They are, relatively speaking, normal sensations that are being amplified by the brain. This can happen with any injury, but it's especially common among people with chronic low back pain. Where there was an injury at some point, now there's just pain that has no point. You know, so I'm, 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 uh, I'm going to challenge it gently. And this is where the pain reprocessing therapy kicks in. You know that the pain is safe, that it's just a faulty signal. Your doctor has assured you of this. So you start pushing the envelope. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to go, huh, isn't that interesting? Maybe that's a false alarm. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of gradually challenge it, increase my motion, and see if it gets better rather than worse. The upshot is we did this in... 150 people randomized to three different groups. And the people in the pain reprocessing therapy group showed really remarkable reductions in pain. So uh, they'd been in pain on an average of 10 years um, prior to being in the study. And after four weeks of treatment with two sessions a week, two thirds of them were pain-free or nearly pain-free. Um, we followed them out to a year and the benefits stayed intact. Right? They stayed pain-free. I mean, more, multiple people in the study said that this, this changed their life. It lasted for a year, and, and there wasn't any sort of daily practice that they had to do or any daily, like, treatment or, or, or you know, that, that they had to engage in. They just went through this process of thinking about their pain differently. And then that just kind of makes the pain go away, and then, and then they're just kind of back to normal a year later. They are. They, they go through the month-long treatment, right? The four-week sessions. So with a, with a psychotherapist, who in this case was, um, mo most of the time, it was Alan Gordon, who is the, the primary uh, inventor of the therapy from his experience. But it's not just that they got treated. It's not like taking, you know, eight pills. It's, it, it is a, it, he introduces people to a different way of thinking about their pain, which they then do practice, right? It's it's a change in how you think about pain every day. Mm. Um, and so if it takes hold, you know, then the, the treatment ends after a month. But but people, every time you feel pain, that's that's essentially a chance to practice this different way of thinking about what's causing it. Not many pain specialists or clinical psychologists have been trained to do pain reprocessing therapy yet. But with Wager's new findings appearing in the prestigious Journal of the American Medical Association, there's reason to expect that will change. There's also the intriguing possibility that a person in pain doesn't have to wait for a therapist to help them rethink their pain. Suppose someone believes in God, believes that God will heal them. So the, 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 the frame that they're approaching this from is... Um, pain reprocessing, but through a spiritual lens. So, you know, God can take my pain away. I'm safe. God can heal me. Is there any reason that would, wouldn't work or, or, or would work any differently? If, if really it's about finding a way to be optimistic and, and feel safe and, and recognize that the pain is unnecessary. That is a really interesting question, Julie. Um, I think if, you know, so if, if your faith really led you to believe deeply that this pain, you know, the pain you're feeling is not dangerous for you, then, and it will go down over time, you know, and, and go away in its, in its, its course, then I think it probably would be effective. Um, you know, again, ruling out a, a specific 
structural or, or physiological cause of the pain. As a kid, I was raised in a religion uh, called Christian Science, in which people believe very, very strongly in the power of belief to heal. And so I, you know, I, I haven't studied this. I don't know anybody who has, but I, I suspect that there are certain things that Christian scientists tend not to experience, right? To certain, certain, you know, ailments or certain problems because they do adopt a very hopeful, positive lens um, through their, their practice, their religious practice. What's your advice for someone who has a loved one who experiences chronic pain? Like how to approach that person, how to treat that person, maybe how to think about the pain that your loved one says they're experiencing. Yeah, every, every person is different. I mean, my dad's had four back surgeries and we, we have these discussions, you know? Um, I, I think that in, in part, there are times when, you know, he, I, I don't know if his surgeries were necessary or, or not, for example, right? But, um, you know, in some cases I've seen, I've seen friends, I've seen people like my father who, who got better probably because of the surgery, but, but that's probably relatively rare. We think that's everybody who gets surgery, but it's not, it's a, it's a minority. And so um, I think that, you know, for my dad, his, his social connections, his, his broader activity uh, really does matter a lot for, for the evolution of his pain and well-being over, over time. And so I, I would, just really, every person is different, but I encourage people to take this idea seriously that the brain can become upregulated and sensitized and it can become desensitized or less sensitized. And, and that can be a really core part of the problem of chronic pain in many cases. Belief was a common theme through all the conversations we had today. For a person in chronic pain, it is so important to have people believe the pain is real and then to find a doctor who believes that too and believes that something other than a drug or surgery might be the best option. For the person in chronic pain, just believing that relief is possible, whether through science or divine intervention, makes relief more likely. It's been great having you with us today for Top of Mind. If you enjoyed what you heard, please remember to subscribe, comment, or leave a review wherever you listen to the podcast. That'll help other people find the show. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Cleon Wall and James Hoops produced today's episode with editing from Ciara Hewlett, Ian Puente, and me. We had music and sound design by Trent Reimschussel, Jacob Molaski, and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.